When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll take up the question, is Obamacare unconstitutional? A federal judge ruled last week that all of Obamacare violates the Constitution. If he's upheld by the Supreme Court, 20 million people will lose their health insurance coverage. The case has the potent name Texas versus the United States. We'll talk about it with Erwin Chemerinsky. He's dean of the law school at UC Berkeley. Also, right-wing authoritarians have been coordinating political campaigns and disrupting elections across national boundaries. It's a project masterminded by Donald Trump's former chief strategist, Steve Bannon. Now it's time for the left, especially the American left, to go on the offensive and reclaim its tradition of internationalism. Atusa Araxia Abrahamian will explain. But first, 2018 was a big year for progressives in America, and the nation has just published our annual progressive honor roll. For that, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent, and his most recent book is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back. It's an honor to be with you, my friend. Well, we talked here a lot about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, but I don't know much about the person you selected as our most valuable House member, Ro Khanna. Ro, R-O, Khanna with a K-H. Tell us about him. Uh, Ro Khanna is the congressman from uh, the, you know, it's sometimes referred to as the South Bay, but it's actually more down towards San Jose, Silicon Valley. He is uh, a former aid in the Obama administration, a tech advisor. And he's the kind of guy who you might expect to be, you know, something of a quote unquote new Democrat, one of these uh, centrist business oriented people. Uh, but that's not what he's been at all. He has uh, he arrived in the, in the House two years ago after defeating a Democratic incumbent in a primary, anticipating what we saw in 2018 with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and Diana Presley. Upon his arrival in Congress, he signaled that uh, he was going to make foreign policy a big priority. And there really is no one in the House who has been so aggressive in trying to alter U.S. foreign policy, particularly as regards Yemen. He's been in the lead on trying to get the United States to uh, end its support for the Saudi assault on Yemen, which has really grown to genocidal proportions in, in many senses. He has also worked with Bernie Sanders on a host of corporate responsibility issues. He's worked with Barbara Lee on efforts to overturn the authorization of the use of military force that has been used as an excuse for so many military interventions by Democratic and Republican presidents. He has uh, written a uh, essentially a tech bill of rights or a digital bill of rights, uh, 
which really is quite visionary in how it asserts privacy rights as well as rights to access the technology. One of the great things about the nation's progressive honor roll is that you don't just focus on national politics. You go down ballot to highlight state and local folks. My favorite is your pick for most valuable judges. Tell us about that. Well, this is an incredible story out of uh, the Houston, Texas area, uh, Harris County. And uh, in that area, uh, they have a lot of elected judges. This is true all over the United States, by the way. Elected judges are very, very common. And um, uh, in the Houston area this year, a large number of judgeships were up, and many African-American women lawyers filed for judgeships. They, they started their campaigns. Many of them were uphill campaigns. And at a certain point, they realized how many of them had done it. And it turned out that there were 17 women who were essentially newcomers to judicial politics, or also two other women uh, who were running for higher level judgeships. We had 17 women who were running all African-American lawyers, many of them with deep roots in civil rights and social justice efforts in the community. They pulled themselves together into a slate and they used the term black girls magic or black girl magic slate. And they urged people to just vote the whole slate, elect all of these women to judgeships in combination with uh, the very strong showing that Beto O'Rourke had in his U.S. Senate race. They were all swept into office and there are incredible pictures of all of these women uh, in a courtroom. Uh, and it's just transformational. It's transformational not merely because it, we're seeing a change in uh, the demographics of the court, if you will. It's also transformational because so many of these women are talking about doing judgeships differently. The black girl magic slate of 17 African-American women candidates for judgeships in Texas, and they all won the nation. Progressive Honor Roll also honored the Attorney General of Massachusetts, Maura Healy. Tell us about her. She's remarkable. Uh, Maura Healy was elected four years ago as Attorney General in Massachusetts, and um, she's a former basketball player, but she's not all that tall, and that probably gives you a good uh, uh, signal as regards the kind of person she is. Uh, she doesn't let anything get in her way, and she has been incredibly outspoken, incredibly visionary in her approach. Uh, she's taken on corporations left and right and really holding them to account. Uh, and she has also taken on Donald Trump. Uh, it's arguable that no attorney general in the country has been so consistently aggressive in suing, challenging, organizing opposition to the Trump administration on Every sort of issue you can imagine, uh, from LGBTQ rights to uh, refugee issues to immigration issues to regulation issues. Uh, she's had a lot of successes in the court, and um, she's very outspoken on this. And one of the things that she did in 2018 that was quite striking was that after so many of these school shootings, she really stepped up and, and became perhaps the loudest advocate in the country for the view that strict gun laws work and pushing back against the NRA, uh, showing you know what Massachusetts has done, arguing that Massachusetts should do more. She's somebody who has 
I think, tremendous potential in our politics. And it's notable that she was reelected uh, in the start of November with 70% of the vote, doing better than anybody, doing better than uh, Governor Baker, who's a popular Republican, or uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who's a popular Democrat. And the nation's progressive honor roll focuses not just on political figures. You also have named the most valuable protest, something I didn't know very much about called Love Knows No Borders. Tell us about Love Knows No Borders, the most valuable protest of the year. Well, it it is an effort by a lot of faith groups uh, from many, many different faith traditions, many different religions, to keep a strong focus on the border. Religious leaders from around the country have come and spent a substantial amount of time in the San Diego area on the border, uh, mounting protests, uh, risking arrests, conducting civil disobedience, doing, taking the steps that are necessary to highlight the immorality of the Trump administration's approach to a host of uh, issues on the border. Now, obviously, this isn't the only protest uh, in that region. We've seen a lot of people step up and really uh, push back against the the awful decisions and choices made by the Trump administration, the separation of families, the demonization of the caravan of folks coming from Central America. But if you look at what uh, the American Friends Service Committee and other religious groups have done with the Love Knows No Borders movement, it's it's actually very inspiring and, and I would argue beautiful. And finally, it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. The nation's progressive honor roll came close to having a category called most valuable Minnesotan. How did that work out? Well, I mean, there's a lot of valuable Minnesotans, uh, you know, and, and obviously you'd be the top, John. But on the on on the chance that 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 you would refuse the honor, uh, there really is a lot of attention on uh, Ilhan Omar, who has come into Congress or will come into Congress in short order. She's a remarkable woman, and she's one of the uh, four women that we highlight as the nation's progressives of uh, 2000, most valuable progressives of 2018. And that's Ilhan Omar from Minnesota, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York, Rashida Tlaib from uh, Michigan, and Ayanna Presley from uh, Massachusetts. Ilhan Omar coming out of Minneapolis, taking the seat formerly held by Keith Ellison. She is someone who grew up in a refugee camp, but she comes as a very distinctive member of Congress, one of the two two first Muslim women in Congress. Uh, But more than that, somebody who, because of her unique experiences, is going to be able to push back uh, against Donald Trump, I think, in incredibly profound ways. John Nichols, with the nation's annual progressive honor roll, read it at thenation.com, where there's lots more about books, movies, media. John, thanks so much for talking with us today. It's a great pleasure to be with you, my friend. Is Obamacare unconstitutional? A federal judge in Texas last week said the answer is yes. Abolishing Obamacare, of course, is something Donald Trump promised to do, something Republicans in the House tried to do dozens of times since the law was passed in 2010. This judge's ruling would eliminate health benefits for more than 20 million people if it was upheld by the Supreme Court. 
For comment, we turn to Erwin Chemerinsky. He's dean of the law school at Berkeley and author of many books, including a new one, We the People, a progressive reading of the Constitution for the 21st Century. He publishes widely, including in the op-ed pages of the New York Times and the L.A. Times. Erwin, welcome back. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Trump, of course, is delighted with this ruling in Texas. He tweeted, quote, Wow, but not surprisingly, Obamacare was just ruled unconstitutional, in all caps, by a highly respected judge in Texas. Great news for America, exclamation point, uh, Donald Trump tweet. This judge, his name is Reed O'Connor, focused on the part of the Affordable Care Act that Republicans have been criticizing since the beginning. That's the individual mandate, which requires that everybody has to buy health insurance, and if they don't, they pay a penalty. The Republican-controlled Congress last year abolished the penalty but left the rest of the law intact. This case is called Texas versus the United States, quite a potent name. What is the argument that, that Texas made and that the judge agreed with? There's a principle that if a part of a statute is declared unconstitutional, a court has to decide whether to invalidate the entire law. The question is, would Congress have passed that law without the provision that was declared unconstitutional? Here the judge says, Congress repealed a part of the law. Therefore, the whole law is unconstitutional. The fallacy, of course, is the judge is using a legal doctrine that doesn't apply. It's not that a part of the law was declared unconstitutional, and the issue is, is the whole law unconstitutional? It's just that Congress repealed a small part of the law. There are many parts of the Affordable Care Act that have nothing to do with the individual mandate. The best known, of course, is the requirement that no one can be denied insurance because of a pre-existing condition. The Affordable Care Act also says insurance companies can't charge higher premiums for people who have chronic conditions like asthma or diabetes or epilepsy. And another of the key provisions of the act prevents insurance companies from putting a cap on yearly benefits or lifetime benefits. But what is the connection that this judge sees between these these different parts? Well, there isn't. I mean, the Congress did not repeal the individual mandate. Congress just eliminated the tax penalty. The law still requires individuals to have health insurance unless they set an exception. So there's just no consequences to doing that. The key is that Congress could have repealed the entire Affordable Care Act. It tried. It didn't have the votes in the Senate. When Congress repealed the tax penalty of the individual mandate, they could have repealed the entire statute. They didn't. Well, the question is always, if a part of a law is unconstitutional, would Congress have wanted the rest of the law to survive? We have the answer to that question here. Congress wanted the rest of the law to survive, which means that the judge's ruling has absolutely no legal basis. We have the answer. A very, very convincing statement. And let me just make it clear how huge it would be if this ruling were upheld and all of Obamacare was declared unconstitutional. The Kaiser Family Foundation, a nonprofit research organization, estimates that there are 52 million adults, 27% of the population, who would be rejected for coverage under the practices that were in effect in most states before the Affordable Care Act. But let's make it clear at the outset that at this point, 
Obamacare and all of its protections remain in effect despite last week's ruling. Why is that? The judge has not issued an injunction that stops Obamacare from continuing to be implemented. If and when the judge issues such an injunction, I'm absolutely convinced that the states defending the Affordable Care Act will go to the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, and it will issue a stay against the judge's ruling taking effect. The judge's ruling has so little legal basis, I can't imagine that a higher court would allow it to be a basis for enjoining the entire Affordable Care Act. Now, the Supreme Court has already ruled on a challenge to the individual mandate and the tax penalty. It found the individual mandate is constitutional. Tell us about that decision. In 2012, in National Federation of Business versus Sibelius, the Supreme Court 5-4 to four upheld the Affordable Care Act. The key question was whether the individual mandate is constitutional, and Chief Justice Roberts wrote for the court saying, it is constitutional as an excess of Congress's power to impose taxes. Now, of course, what Judge O'Connor is saying here is that if the individual mandate was based on the taxing power and the tax aspects repealed, therefore the whole law is unconstitutional. The problem is the conclusion doesn't follow from the premise. The conclusion has to be about what did Congress intend with regard to the Affordable Care Act when it repealed the tax penalty. We know what Congress' intent is. It didn't want to repeal the whole Affordable Care Act. It didn't do so. So then why wasn't this judge in Texas required to follow the 2012 decision of the Supreme Court on this question? What the judge said was, in 2012, the tax penalty existed to enforce the individual mandate. What changed in 2017 was Congress repealed the tax penalty. He then wants to argue that Congress's repeal of the tax penalty meets the whole statute's unconstitutional. As you pointed out, the Affordable Care Act is over 2,000 pages long. There's no reason to believe that Congress, by repealing this one provision, meant to repeal the entire statute. Congress could have. Congress didn't do that. Let's talk a little bit more about what happens now. The states have standing to appeal this ruling in Texas. Does that leave them defending Obamacare? Because certainly the the Trump Justice Department is not supporting Obamacare. They're supporting Texas and seeking the repeal of the uh, the entire law. That's exactly right. This is a relatively unusual instance, it's not unheard of, of the United States government refusing to defend a federal statute. The Trump Justice Department announced that it would no longer defend the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. And as you said at the beginning of this segment, Donald Trump has clearly expressed his views, including his views of constitutional law. So the defense of the Affordable Care Act is coming from states that have intervened And this includes California as one of the intervener states defending Obamacare. And you said that when the Supreme Court ruled on the constitutionality of the individual mandate, it ruled five to four in favor of the constitutionality of the the entire Affordable Care Act. Who were the five judges uh, and will they rule the same way if this gets to them? The five in the majority were Roberts, Ginsburg, Breyer, Senator, and Kagan. They all remain on the court. The four dissenting justices were Scalia, Kennedy, Thomas, and Alito. Of course, Scalia and Kennedy are no longer on the court, replaced by Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. I actually think if this issue 
as decided by the federal court in Texas comes to the Supreme Court, it'll be nine to nothing to wow. reject this argument. Wow. Because this argument is based on the premise that if a part of a law is unconstitutional, you have to decide if Congress would have adopted the rest of the law. No part of the law has been declared unconstitutional, so this legal doctrine doesn't apply at all. And even if it did, we know what Congress intended, because Congress could have, but chose not to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And what is the schedule on this? When, when would it be likely to come before the Supreme Court? When would it be argued? When would it be decided? Certainly not this term. It, a lot depends on what does Judge O'Connor do? Does he issue an injunction? Then it would go to the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Initially, they have to decide whether to stay the injunction to allow Obamacare to remain in effect. I think it would certainly do that. It would then take many months to have this briefed and argued, and then it would be on the way to the Supreme Court. My guess is next year at the earliest would be for the Supreme Court to hear this. It could even be two years away. So the Democrats regard this as a tremendous gift because protection of people with pre-existing conditions and coverage of chronic conditions and the ban on lifetime caps, these are all tremendously popular in the United States. And the Democrats can mount a big fight before the Supreme Court rules and run on this in 2020. But in the meantime, what does Texas versus United States say about judicial activism on the right and, and about the place of the courts in our political system? Well, this is the epitome of judicial activism on the right. It's a very conservative judge, and he strikes down an entire federal statute. I do want to emphasize what you've been talking about in terms of all of the things that are part of Obamacare. When Republicans railed against Obamacare, most people didn't realize all of the ways in which it provided protection the 50-some million people who got health care as a result. I tell the story often, I had cancer in 1982, and in 1983 I took a job at the University of Southern California Law School. None of their private insurance companies would give me insurance because I had a pre-existing condition. The Obamacare, meaning that people like that will still be able to get health insurance, is enormously important. Obamacare says people with chronic conditions like diabetes or epilepsy or asthma can't be charged more for health care. Obamacare says there can no longer be yearly or lifetime caps on benefits. According to David Himmelstein, a bankruptcy professor, 54% of consumer bankruptcies in the United States before the Obamacare was adopted was because of health care costs. These are all of the things that the Affordable Care Act does. I don't think the Obama administration did a very good job of explaining this to the American people. But as more and more people have become aware of it, there's much more support and bipartisan support for the Affordable Care Act. Erwin Chemerinsky, Dean of the Law School at UC Berkeley. Erwin, thanks so much. Great to have you on the show. Always my great pleasure. Transnational networks of right-wing authoritarians are flourishing right now with coordinated political campaigns that are disrupting elections around the globe. This is a project masterminded by Donald Trump's former chief strategist, Steve Bannon. So now it's time for the left, especially the American left, to go on the offensive and reclaim its tradition of internationalism by campaigning around shared platforms and policies in many countries. 
The effort to establish a progressive international is being led right now by Yanis Varoufakis, the former Greek finance minister. For comment and analysis, we turn to Atusa Abrahamian. She's senior editor at The Nation. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the London Review of Books, Le Monde, and other publications. And she's author of the book, The Cosmopolites, The Coming of the Global Citizen. Atusa, welcome back. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back. Well, Giannis uh, met with American progressives recently at a big gathering in Vermont sponsored by the Bernie Sanders Institute, the Sanders Institute. You were there. Before we talk about that meeting, remind us, who is Giannis Varoufakis and why is he so important today? So Varoufakis is uh, an economics professor. He's Greek. uh, And he became quite well-known, you could even say infamous, in 2015, when he was uh, the Greek party Syriza's finance minister. Syriza was elected to government, uh, I think it was in January, and this was in the middle of some pretty fraught debt negotiations with uh, Europe, with the European Central Bank, the the Troika, um, which was trying to impose austerity on Greece. So in 2015, Varoufakis went to Brussels to negotiate Greece's debt, and uh, long story short, they ended up having a vote in Greece about whether he should proceed and, and threaten to leave the EU if he didn't get a good deal. And the people voted yes, proceed. But then Alexis Tsipras, the leader of Syriza, kind of threw Varoufakis under the bus and said, no, we can't do that. And so he wound up resigning from his post, leaving Brussels. And, uh, you know, here we are now. And Giannis right now is running for office, actually for two offices. Please explain. He is running in his home country of Greece where he's leading a party called Mera 25. And in Germany, uh, Janis Varoufakis is running under DiEM25's umbrella to become a member of the European Parliament representing Germany. So the way he was able to do that is very clever. He and his team realized that to run for MEP in Germany, all you got to do if you're a European citizen is to uh, show proof of residence. And he rented an apartment from a friend, also a DiEM25 member, went to town hall, registered, and and there you go. He was eligible to run for office. That's how he ended up running for office in two countries at the same time. And what was that Vermont event at the Sanders Institute, and and what was Giannis hoping to accomplish there? The the Sanders Institute is, uh, it's worth noting that it's separate from Senator Sanders. Uh, The Sanders Institute is run by Jane Sanders, Bernie's wife, and uh, David Driscoll, who is Jane Sanders' uh, son from another marriage. So it's not a a Senator Sanders enterprise. However, it bears his name, you know, it's in the family. And so he was there Uh, the Sanders Institute had a kind of gathering, a meeting of minds uh, of, you know, the best and brightest progressives in the country and around the world. And one of the sessions of this conference uh, was dedicated to internationalism. And that's where Yanis Varoufakis, along with Jeffrey Sachs and Ada Kalau, the mayor of Barcelona, a couple of other people announced that this progressive international was, was, was launched. And yeah, it was, it was a panel. They launched it. They said, you know, progressives need to be in this together to, to vanquish the threat of authoritarian nationalism. But, you know, what they're actually going to do uh, remains to be seen. So we have the PI, the Progressive International, and then we have DM25, that's capital D, little I, capital E, capital M. What does is, what is the acronym DM25 stand for? DM25 is an acronym for Democracy in Europe 
movement, the Democracy in Europe Movement 2025. And it's a pan-European political movement launched uh, by Varoufakis in 2015. So they, they love their acronyms. So this event at the Sanders Institute takes us back to Bernie. Bernie's campaign in 2016 was very much centered appropriately on American issues. You know, Medicare for all, $15 minimum wage, free college tuition. He said almost nothing about other countries or about international issues. Did you see signs at the Vermont gathering that that Bernie or the Bernie people were changing on that score? Bernie's thinking has definitely evolved um, on matters related to internationalism and foreign policy. If you'll recall in 2016, one of the most valid critiques I thought of Bernie was that he doesn't have a foreign policy. He doesn't know what's going on elsewhere. He doesn't talk about it. And over the past two years, I think it's been totally inevitable to engage with the rest of the world because the same things that are happening in in political life in the U.S. are happening in Europe, uh, are happening in Brazil, are happening in Russia, China, um, the Philippines. You know, you have the rise of these authoritarian strongmen um, that some people call illiberal, illiberal democracies. And this is a huge threat, um, not only to some conceptions of democracy, but certainly to leftism and certainly to progressivism. And uh, I think Bernie Sanders, Yanis Varoufakis, all of these uh, people in their own way are coming to grips with the fact that we need to have something bigger than, you know, socialism in just one country or progressivism in one country. There's got to be a coordinated network of groups working together uh, to defeat these guys. And of course, Bernie is not the only progressive political candidate in the world to be focused on his own country. Don't many social democratic parties in Europe have the same kind of focus on social programs in their in their own countries rather than internationalism? That's that's not crazy or narrow minded. Elections happen inside national boundaries and elected officials be are the heads of nations which have boundaries. Absolutely. Um Fortunately or unfortunately, that is the case, and I think we're going to be living with nation-states and borders for the foreseeable future. I think what Varoufakis is doing is actually intervening and saying, hey, guys, you may very well be running for office in Germany, in Greece, in Spain, wherever you happen to be from, but don't forget there's a whole other world out there. Um, And don't forget that advancing a progressive agenda cannot happen in a vacuum. You can't have an island of regressivism and, you know, havoc everywhere else. That's just not how it works. And the fact is that today our economies are global, our supply chains are global, bankers have global networks, right-wingers have global networks, centrists have global networks. So why don't progressives do more in this area? There needs to be a lot more coordination and I think that's what's behind Varoufakis's defense of maybe not international organizations as we know them today, but of the concept of an international organization and of the potential for more progressive multilateral and international organizations. I mean, imagine the possibilities if the ECB, the IMF, and the World Bank all had pe- like the best interests of working people in mind instead of simply serving, uh, you know, lenders and uh, capitalists. That's a really utopian vision, but I don't think that it's one that we should abandon right off the bat. Well, let's talk specifics here. What What is the starting point for the progressive international in terms of policies which could be introduced in all the countries that are part of it? DM25 talks about a Green New Deal for Europe, 
this presumably would, would involve investment in infrastructure that, that is carbon neutral, um, that's good for the environment. This would create jobs, this would create tax revenues, it would stimulate economies. It would require a lot of buy-in from all of the member states of the European Union and beyond, right? If we want to make a dent in climate change, it's, it can't just be Europe or the U.S., it's got to be lots of countries. So public investment across the continent. Varoufakis has spoken about uh, socializing benefits and, and high labor standards rather than social, like spreading austerity. DM25's big, big sticking point is they are against austerity and they are, they are against cost cutting. So it's more of a, a stimulus for these economies. And uh, beyond that, I think, you know, an element that the right has really seized upon and the right international or the nationalist international, whatever you want to call the Steve Bannon affiliated uh, groups of the world, is that they really have a strong message that's based on fear. And I think that there needs to be better messaging from the left. There needs to be better social media. Uh, I think that the progressive international might play a role in, in helping groups out with this. But there needs to be a narrative intervention, which is that, you know, we can't base our politics on fear and there has to be progress, right? There has to be investment in the public sector and in people and in workers. But it, and if this sounds very vague, then that's because it is. The Progressive International is literally right now, it's a website, it's a video, and it's some nice words. So we can't really say too much more than, than what I'm saying. Of course, a Green New Deal and anti-austerity are not the most immediate issues that the European Union is facing right now. The most immediate issue, of course, is migration, as you said. And let's remember that Hillary Clinton said in November that Europe must curb immigration in order to stop right-wing populists. What does Yanis uh, and his allies say about that? The thinking is that you can't capitulate to the terms that the far right has set on the political conversation. You can't say, oh, well, we need to, we need to you know, make concessions on migration uh, because that's what's going to win us elections. That's just playing by their rules. Uh, the goal is to change the conversation. Uh, I think it's worth talking a little bit about what DM25 and, and this broader progressive international idea has to say about migration. And, that, and that's what it they're not calling for free-for-all for everyone to move everywhere, wherever they want at any given moment. Uh, for them, a strong foundation for migration policy is creating circumstances where people don't need to move unless they want to. So moving because you're not making enough money at home and you have to feed your family, that, that's not voluntary migration. That's sort of forced. You, know? you don't really have a choice. You've got to move. You've got to go to Germany to make enough money. And the thinking behind the Progressive International is if we put enough public investment in a country like Greece, where people can have health care, they can have jobs, they can feel secure um, and feel less precarious, then they won't be moving to Germany. Then they won't be moving anywhere. I mean, people, I think, would rather stay with their families and be in the community they grew up in or around people they know. And uh, so ending forced migration is a different way to think about migration than, well, you know, let in fewer migrants. If, if we create circumstances where people don't need or want to move, then we've solved the problem, haven't we? Not everyone agrees. Not all the progressives who were at that Vermont gathering agreed with Yanis uh, and Bernie on this. You spoke with Winnie Wong, the co-founder of People for Bernie, who had some fairly sharp criticisms of what Yanis was proposing for a progressive international. 
I think Winnie's, you know, objections to, to Varoufakis are less about his ideas, which everyone seems basically on board with. You know, a lot of people say, oh, this pie in the sky, it's never going to happen. No one says it's wrong. No one says it's bad. I think that the issue is that Varoufakis is perceived as someone who maybe parachutes in, has these high-level discussions, ex- expects everybody to follow him, but really isn't doing the, the nitty-gritty grassroots work of organizing people on the ground. And uh, that's an objection that I've heard a lot. I think it's a valid criticism. And to be fair, I don't, I don't think that Varoufakis is really like a community organizer kind of guy. So, Atusa, do you have any concluding thoughts about all of this? Well, I'm just really happy that somebody is uh, taking the time and, and has a platform to put their weight behind internationalism and specifically left internationalism. I don't know that this is going to be much more than a, a narrative intervention and, and a sort of a curtain raiser for what is to come. Um, but And I think, listen, uh, people have various thoughts on Varoufakis, but he does play a really important role here in that if he didn't, if he wasn't saying these things, if he didn't exist, you'd have to make him up, right? Someone has got to say these things and he has a great platform. He's, you know, charismatic. Uh, he gets a lot of media attention and uh, I'm just really glad he's doing this. Atusa Araxia Ibrahimian wrote about Yanis Varoufakis's international odyssey for The Nation magazine. You can read her at thenation.com. Thank you, Atusa. John, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Finally, this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation. This week, Dave talks about the best boxing documentary ever made, The Trials of Muhammad Ali, and its director, Bill Siegel. He passed away last week. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. New episodes every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton, Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.